You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, special episode number four, for September 5th, 2008. Warning. This story contains mature themes and situations and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Hello again, Metamorphs, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Metamore City Podcast. I am your guest host, Brian Watson. Chris will be back again on Sunday, but for now, without any ado whatsoever, I bring you part two of Make Believe. Here's the story so far. In part one, Artax, the cantankerous old wizard who runs spells for you, one of the city's most popular and well-stocked magic shops, was troubled by visions he had of a young man named John Tunstall. John was soon to be Artax's student. He saw Tunstall causing trouble, dressed as a battle mage, and even saw him standing over Artax's prone and very still body. During the first class that Artax and Tunstall had together, a city-wide alert went out, telling the citizens that the city was under attack from a magical threat. After a brief confrontation between Artax and Tunstall, Artax went out to find the source of the trouble. As the episode ended, Artax found himself with Metamore City Police Department's Magical Affairs Division, led by Detective Kate Kitane. This is the building where he finally stopped, Katane said. He's been up there ever since. One man. All of this commotion was being caused by one man, a registered mage named Michael Parker, they told me. They also told me that Parker barely existed in the system at all. A couple of traffic tickets, but nothing serious. Certainly not anything to indicate megalomania. They were still trying to suss out an explanation when I heard it. A sound like someone clearing their throat. As they continued talking, I flicked my eyes over the shelves and found what I was looking for. You'll excuse me for a moment, I said. The headache I thought I'd beaten this morning has come back. I'm just going to find something for it. I made my way over to the pharmaceutical aisle and found a number of small seedling plants. This is not very discreet, I said. Can't be helped, said Levinson. I found you here and figured that if you could find a way to communicate quietly, you would. They're out. Excuse me? Your students. They got out. This had better be a new and revolutionary definition of the word out that I've yet to become familiar with, I said. I'm afraid it's the old standard one. How did they get out, I asked, feeling strangely calm. Don't know. The doors were already open when I got there. The guards and a couple of the caseworkers were out cold, and so was one of the kids. My hopes rose for a moment. Maybe it was Tunstall. I think I heard someone call him Gibbons. So much for hope. 
Another one. Somebody called him Tunstall was trying to rally the rest of the kids. Rally them? For what? Can't be anything good. He was saying that you're not as young as you used to be, slowing down. And that was true. Some people think that wizards grow more powerful as they age. This is not entirely accurate. While a magician can become better at what he does over time, his main advantage is that as he gets older, he's able to access greater pools of mana from within himself. Thus, a wizard who's relatively weak in their teenage years can become very competent by middle age and quite formidable late in their life. I've been alive for, well, longer than most people with round ears, and I was no weakling as a young man. These days, even two or three big spells in quick succession won't wind me. But like I said, Tunstall was right. I'm getting older, and I'm slowing down. And a lucky shot can take down a wizard who's in his prime, regardless of his power level or his inner mana reserves. What else did he say? That together, they could be strong enough that they wouldn't have to be afraid. I'm sorry I didn't stick around much after that. I just came to find you. Keeping just enough of my consciousness at your shop to feel a lot of the kids leaving. And so there it was. I had two dangerous enemies out there tonight. Could you find them? Uncertainty crept into his voice. A lot of upper-level homes have these plants, but not so much in the middle level, and they're damn near unheard of on the street. If the kids aren't up here, I'm not going to be any good. Right. Never mind, then. Here's what I want you to do. Artax, are you talking to the shelf? I turned to face Detective Contain. Of course not. I've been talking to myself. Yourself? My dear detective, if I want to have a conversation with an intellectual peer, then I am very limited in my options. Often I find that I myself am the only one who can offer any decent discussion on most subjects. I thought I heard another voice, she said, looking at the area behind me. That's because I often have to carry both sides of the conversation, I said, trying my best to recall Levinson's speech patterns. Uh-huh. Did you get something for your headache? I had forgotten my excuse to leave the planning table in the first place. The analgesics were about a meter farther down the aisle from where I'd been standing when she'd spotted me. If she'd heard more than she was letting on, then I really didn't want to think about it. No, I said to her question. A thought hit me as I was walking over here, and I got caught up. She came over to stand near me and turned to face the same direction I was facing. These are Nocturna's lilies, aren't they? They're rare. Quite right, I said. On both counts. They only grow in one place in the entire world. Kitane swallowed. The rift. How are they even gathered? Oh, the rift is quite safe, as long as you don't venture in too deep. These plants abound along the edge. You couldn't pay me enough to go near that place. And now that we've harvested some of these, why do they have to keep going back there? Can't we just make a few cuttings and start growing them in other places? I'm afraid not. Their lives must begin in that magically saturated land. They'll grow here just fine after harvest, but any that are sown here don't possess the more esoteric qualities that make them valuable to potions masters and pharmacists. I sell them from my shop, you know. Yeah, Morgan mentioned that you seem pretty obsessed with them. Which is saying something coming from a vampire. One corner of her mouth had quirked up, but the smile was just window dressing. After a long pause, she spoke again. You were right. We're out of our league here, Artax. 
I made my way to the end of the aisle and looked at the bright spot on the city skyline. Perhaps, I said, but Parker out there isn't out of mine. If, at any time, you plan on deliberately confronting your own mortality more than, say, once a decade, it's a very good idea to know what your limits are. Half a lifetime ago, I thought I'd come up against my own limits. I was frustrated and ready to quit the assignment I'd been given when I'd had an epiphany. It was something small. Just something somebody told me in passing that sparked a random thought which created the breakthrough that I'd been looking for. I never saw that person again. Just as well, really. I don't think I could have faced them afterwards. Katane could say whatever she wanted to about dangers she wouldn't face, but I know her type. Even if the threat is too big to contemplate, they fight on. They keep doing what's expected of them, paying the price without counting the cost to themselves. Some people call that noble. Other people call it stupid. I was fairly certain that both were correct from time to time. Nevertheless, I found myself on an upper-level rooftop facing something down that had once been a man. I wasn't sure what it was now, but it responded to me when I said, Hello, Master Parker. Attacks. So good to see you again. Or shall I call you teacher? It was still shaped more or less like a human, but larger and misshapen, like some god had gone mad and given it extra muscles at random. Its skin was darker than that of the man in the picture, but unnaturally so, like I was looking through a tinted window. His hair stood on end and writhed, reminding me of the tales of the ancient Gorgons. And when he turned to face me, I literally saw fire in his eyes. And there was something else. A sense of power. Pulsing. Moving. I felt stronger just from being near it. As if my spells would be amplified if I used them here. Like swimming with a river's current. I haven't been your teacher for quite some time now, Parker. And I certainly never taught you anything like this. No, you didn't. Most the pity. If you had, people like you wouldn't be running shops for mundanes. You'd be ruling them. Must I remind you of the words of the Star Child, Michael? Which ones? The ones about how all people with any amount of power should be a bunch of simpering pussies? Or the ones where those same people should use their power to serve those born beneath them? I ventured a few steps closer. We are born above no one, Michael. Oh, but we are. Despite what our illustrious Majestrix may say, all men are not created equal. Evolution has given us a leg up on the Mundies. And yet, there's still far more of them on this planet than all the magicians, sighs, elves, and lutins put together, I said. If you scare the mundane humans, really, truly scare them, then we're all dead. They've tried it before, he said taking a few steps back to keep the distance between us. Belatedly, 
I noticed that the distance he was keeping was the optimal distance for dueling. Magical duels are left best observed from a great distance, or, if you can arrange it, on a purely theoretical level. They're bad enough when the other guy is sane and in full control of his abilities. Parker wasn't even in the same city as his sanity. And now they have everything they'd need to wipe us off the face of the earth, I said. Guns, bombs, and the common man has enough knowledge of ritual magic to make the field of battle between himself and the average wizard very level. The fire in his eyes didn't diminish. It just became more focused. He looked out over the edge of the building. All the more reason why we should strike now. I followed his gaze. The city really is quite impressive. Beautiful, really. And if you can get a chance to look at it from high enough up, it even looks peaceful. But like the storm clouds that had begun brewing in the skies, there was power and the potential for great destruction. I could see St. Teresa's off in the distance, its proud spires dwarfed by the rest of the city, but still managing to make their presence known. I could see the building the Lothanasi used as their central headquarters, and if I craned my neck, I could just make out a portion of Westfall Academy. It took me only a second to realize that I hadn't just spotted the three buildings at random. Three institutions of great power built so close together, though most people are still unaware of Westfall's true nature, or of the mystical confluence that St. Teresa's was built upon in an effort to contain. I turned back to Parker to try and bring him down, when the bottom of my stomach fell out. From the small trees the wealthy keep on their balconies, I could see flocks of birds suddenly erupting, all heading south of us as the sound of dogs barking began to fill the evening. I felt suddenly nervous, tense, and it didn't take me long to realize why. Just like the dogs and the birds, I was having a biological reaction to a sudden drop in air pressure. My eyes met Parker's, which were half-closed in concentration. It took you long enough. He sounded almost calm. I had thought I'd been buying people time. That by talking to Parker, I was delaying his attack. But up in the sky, the clouds above St. Teresa's Westfall and Lothanasi HQ had begun swirling. The air was still and the clouds had taken on a sickly shade of green. And finally I realized that the constant pulse of power I'd been feeling since I came up to this roof had been Parker drawing power into himself to cast this massive spell. I heard a shout from the skyway and looked down to see Tunstall running toward my building with Katain in close pursuit. The detective had a decent amount of magical talent herself, but it tended to be along the lines of illusionism. Not terribly useful in a duel. If she came up here, she was as good as dead. I couldn't protect her from Parker and Tunstall at the same time. This had to be settled here and now. Fortunately, magic has its own set of laws that have to be obeyed. Not rules that men make, mind you, but laws, like physics, that are problematic for a practitioner to get around. Parker was drawing upon massive amounts of energy, more than his inner reserves of mana could ever account for. Any wizard can do this. In fact, you don't have to be a wizard to do it, because the energy is everywhere, in all life. It's what makes it possible for mundanes to perform ritual magic. Parker was essentially allowing himself to become the magical equivalent of an extension cord. It was all fine in theory until that power was released. If Parker had his way, the energy would be released into the storm to create three tornadoes to destroy what he perceived as three enemy strongholds. But that's where the analogy to the extension cord breaks down. If you unplug a cord, the power simply stops moving through it. And magic, however, that power still needs to go somewhere. 
and lacking a will to drive it, it tends to go back along the path that it's been moving on most recently. If I could manage to unplug Parker, that energy would come back here. And if I was very lucky, I could contain enough of it to keep this building from turning into a crater. I won't let you do it, Michael, I said. There's no honor in this, and those people have done nothing to you. But they will! Don't you understand that, Artax? They will! Unless we stop them now! Stay out of it. It doesn't concern you. I heard the stairwell doors below us as Tunstall and Contain slammed through them. I had to do this now. It's too late for that, Parker. You've already sown the wind. And I suppose that you're the whirlwind. Electricity etched between my fingers. Just remember that you're the one who said that. He turned and charged me just as I heard the door to the rooftop burst open. I don't think I'm necessarily hell-bound, but whatever heavens are out there, probably not vying with each other to get my soul when my life is done. So I was rather surprised to see the face of an angel, a beautiful woman surrounded by a nimbus of light when I opened my eyes. It was raining in this particular heaven, but it was a soft, cooling rain, so I figured I could deal with it. Then the angel shone a pen light directly into my eyes. Get that damn thing out of my face, I said, knocking it away. Yep, he's lucid, Detective Katane said. Will he be all right? Asked another voice. Tunstall's voice, I noted, and laced with genuine concern. Well, he's hit his head, so yeah, probably. Oh, look who's a laugh riot, I said. Now help me up before I turn both of you into Lutons. They both pulled me to my feet. What was left of Parker was smoldering on one corner of the roof. Now what in the hells are you doing here? I asked Tunstall. Hey, go easy on the kid. He saved your life up here. He shrugged and turned his face away in embarrassment. I did what anybody would have done. Katane stifled a laugh. What a lot of people would have liked to have been able to do, but few can... She turned to me. He channeled and redirected that energy that you couldn't from that little stunt you pulled. If he hadn't been here, this building would be about three or four stories shorter, and that was after he saved a bunch of lives a few blocks from here. I arched an eyebrow. Really, I said. She nodded. Remember that fireball that flew past us earlier? It hit a movie theater over at Hanning Plaza. Your boy here was walking past looking for you. He managed to use his power to keep the walls and ceiling up long enough for everybody to get out. The cooling effect of the rain was now being negated by the heat coming from Tunstall's face. I was half expecting it to turn to steam when it hit. I smiled for a moment, and then the memory of my vision of the young man came back to me and I cursed myself. I'd been so intent on seeing my own prejudices that I hadn't considered any other interpretations for my visions. What about the rest of the students? The ones who stayed at your shop are being taken back to their center now. The rest are with my force in the store. Don't worry, Artax. They're all accounted for. I wonder if I might impose on one of your men to take Master Tunstall and me back to my shop. I'd like to have a word with him there before he goes back to his facility. She nodded. I'll get someone to take you.
Somebody was already waiting for us when I opened the door to my shop. I don't know who you are or how you got in here, I said. But you picked the wrong store to try and rob. The figure stepped into the light. Rob? He said. I just came to give you a tip on tomorrow's market. I let out the breath that I'd been holding. I wasn't really up to facing any more trouble that evening. I turned to introduce Tunstall to the deposed trickster god when I saw that he'd already given my visitor a bow from the waist. Well, now things were starting to make sense. Lord Klepnos, good to see you again, sir. And you, young Tunstall. Things working out for you here, then? Tunstall cast a sidelong glance at me. He wasn't quite as open to my help as you implied he would be, but things seemed to have worked out. Now, now, ah, ah, ah. I never said he'd be willing to accept your help, just that he needed it. Very important to listen to this one very carefully, I said. There was wry humor on Dunstall's face. I'm learning that. Have you made a decision on my offer, I asked him. I'll have to sleep on it, but it seems like a good idea. I nodded. Go get your things. The officer will take you back. He was gone a few minutes later. Klepnos was fishing through his pockets, pulling out things like bicycle horns and rubber haddocks before finally producing a tray with two glasses. Mine was a tall, cold glass of sarsaparilla, while his was three striated colors and seemed to have very tiny fish swimming about in it. For a while, we drank in silence. You offered to make him your apprentice, didn't you? I looked over at my friend. The half-smirk that always seemed to be on his face was gone, but the twinkle in his eyes was still there. Isn't that why you sent him to me, I asked. He leaned back in his chair. I sent him to you to help you with tonight. Now, if you do decide to keep him on, well, I see a very beneficial relationship down that path for both of you. You could have told me he was working for you. But he's not. He's just somebody I met to my volunteer work in the juvenile corrections system. I barked out a laugh. You? A volunteer? I can't believe it. You're actually starting to run out of jokes to tell. It's no joke, Artax. I've been doing it for about two years now. The mirth drained from me. You're telling the truth, I said. Why? He shrugged. Why should I lie? You know damn well what I'm talking about. Why the volunteer work? Now even the twinkle faded from his eyes. I'm scared, Artax. We all are. All of the gods. He was. I could see the truth in his eyes. Scared? Of what? He chuckled, but it was the laugh of a terminally ill patient who's accepted their fate. The future. We're not sure what's coming. None of us are, I said. Not even those of us who can see the future know what's coming. My own experience this night is a testimony to the fact. And when was the last time you really looked? Hmm? Look beyond your own current situation, about how to get the customer exactly what they need so they'll leave faster, or how to use one of your students' own histories against him. There's a time, just a few years from now, when all prophecy fails. All of it, Artax. The gods look, and we see nothing. I didn't know what to say. After a minute or so... I asked, So what should I do? Just what you've been doing. I sent you to this city for a reason, and your time is coming. This play doesn't center around you, but you're plenty close to a lot of the people that it does. He set down his drink and stared thoughtfully at it for a moment. 
When he looked back at me, his voice was gentle. The voice you would use at the bedside of a dying man. And that frightened me more than anything else he had said before. When I found you, you were a broken man. You rediscovered your purpose in life and got yourself back on track better than most people would. But now, you're going to be tested again. That breaking point of long ago will either be the solid foundation on which you stand, or it will break you again. And this time, you won't recover. Which one happens is up to you. He rose then, downing the rest of his drink in one long pull. In a moment, he was his old self again, his eyes and smile twinkling, as if all the grave words of the last few minutes had been forgotten. Ah, now then. There's a young lady down south who's doing some very interesting work, and I have to go and see if she has any promise. He sketched a quick bow. I'll see myself out. Gotta say I like him, Levinson said after the door closed. I slumped sullen in my chair. You would. You're both cut from the same cloth. You should have known me when I was human. I wasn't the carefree soul that you see before you now. Well, not see per se but you get the idea. I just stared for a while, hoping he'd go away and let me brood. He didn't. Hey, you okay? No. When he didn't leave, I went on. Not five years ago, I sat in this very room and told someone that my killing days were behind me. And tonight, I made a liar of myself. His voice grew softer. You did what you had to do. If what your friend Klepnos tells me is true, then you saved a lot of lives in doing it. And the price is another life? I'm sorry, but that is just not acceptable. There had to have been another way. Maybe there was, maybe not. Either way, you didn't have time to look for it. You did what you had to do. It's what happens when we operate on limited data, which, just in case you've forgotten, is all anybody but Eli gets. You think I would have volunteered to lead that mission had he known about this? I'm sorry, I said. And we're not angry. Well, Nightwind was for a decade or so. But for an elf, that's like being pissed off for a week. The fact is, we've all grown to accept and even embrace this, even Nightwind. He's had something like three epiphanies now that he doesn't have a body to distract him. I just sat in silence for a while. I'll be around if you need me, he said at last. And then he was gone. Maybe he was right. Maybe I did simply have to move on. Maybe I needed to go through life realizing that even though I know a lot more than most people, I didn't know everything. That in the end, I was just as blind as everyone else. And that I didn't have to do it alone. I didn't get up from my chair for a long time. Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you've enjoyed this story, because it was a real challenge to do. Not that I'm resentful. I mean, I'm looking to start my own podcasting endeavor soon, so it was a fantastic learning experience. But, like our tax in the story, we tend to learn best by making brash assumptions and stupid decisions. I'll just leave it at that. Until Chris has another lapse in sanity and lets me do this again, take care of yourselves. 
some sounds for this episode were obtained in an agreement with the Freesound Project. Visit them online at www.freesound.org. Music from To The Lighthouse was used by special permission from the artist. All other music was used in agreement with the Podsafe Music Network, which has some really bitchin' music for sale at very reasonable prices. Go on and check them out. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 United States license. That means you can share it all you like with people, but you have to give Chris his props, or he'll have you turned into a lutin'.